This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And welcome back to our sum... What the fuck is it called? Hey, damn it. True, True Crime, crime TV Club. No, 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 no. It's True a Crime tr- Movie Time Summer, Summer Film, Film Festival. Festival. This is an after-lunch recording. We're just going to warn you right now. We don't drink at lunch, but you wouldn't know it because we act like we do. <laughs> well, we act like we drink all the time. And we don't and drink. And we don't drink ever. So, yeah. <laughs> but we highly recommend that you drink if you're listening to this podcast. I think it really improves the experience. It, In fact, if you're asleep, it's even better. <laughs> we recommend that you go to sleep to our podcast drunk unless you're driving. Please don't drink and drive. We don't condone that. Or sleep and drive. I think sleeping and driving is also really nice. It's all of a piece, as Eric Shaw Quinn likes to say, <laughs> of a piece. Okay, this is what we're doing. Let me get it out now because we're going to forget about it if I leave it to later. Um, it's the first in another true crime pairing. It's California Screaming Month. It's that part of our true crime movie time summer film festival. We are setting up a TV movie next week about the Hillside Stranglers. So we're going to be doing a true crime TV club this week about, you guessed it, the Hillside Stranglers. Which is um, really going to really help. Help you figure out whether or not the movie is lying, because that's what we love to yeah, do. But it wouldn't help at all if we did a true crime about Jack the Ripper and then did <laughs> Hillside Strangler. That would Eric. be interesting, but it wouldn't really be a parent. I'm really glad you pointed that out. I was confused until you did. Um, <laughs> oh, face. I'm glad, I, glad I could clear that up for you. That's <laughs> a face there. Um, the show we're going to be talking about today, and our standard disclaimer is you do not need to have watched the show, and you do not need to go and watch the show. Uh, but you but can. If you want to, we want to tell you what it is. It's called Very Scary People. It's about Eric before 11 a.m. <laughs> Stick around for the jokes. Or if they got my order wrong. It's about Eric at a restaurant where they fucked up his salad. Um, no, it is available on, oh, is this the one that it's like, no, it's available on Discovery Plus. Or I ID, whatever. Yeah, they have a free option with commercials on discoveryid.com, I think is where it I is. I think that's right. Uh, the host is none other than Donnie Wahlberg, who I guess is qualified for this because he was in Saw 2. That's I'm going out on a limb there. I don't know why he's qualified to talk to us about very scary people. Because he's on um, Blue Bloods. Which you watch. I did watch it. You did watch it. What I, happened? I lasted as long as I could. It was a pretty good show. I enjoyed it. Um, and then it got to a place where I just felt like they didn't care anymore. How did that manifest? Well, there was an episode where... Um, People were at a um, Tom Selleck and his grandchildren were at a museum, mm-hmm. um, and during the same time period, several days passed um, in other parts of the story. <laughs> so it was like the everything, everywhere, all at once episode. And it was snowing, and then it wasn't snowing, and then hmm. there was that place that sold that doll, and then that solved the crime because only one place sold that doll. Like it was uh-huh. just one of those things where it's like. 
I really feel like you just phoned this in. Hmm. Yeah. And I just stopped. I had the same experience with um, NCIS LA. I loved it until just one day I just went, yeah, you just don't care anymore. You're just showing up and filming this and, you know, depositing the checks and going on with your day. And I think that's fine, but I don't have to stay for it. <laughs> that's good. So I moved on. But I think it's because he plays a police detective on that that they put him on a true crime show. Okay, that makes more sense. I would also like to say, as long as we're on the topic of Donnie Wall, Donnie <laughs> Wahlberg. What? I'm so excited to find out what this tone is about. Okay. I feel like, like, I, I like Donnie Wahlberg. I think he's a pretty good little actor. Mm-hmm. Um, he may be a good singer. I have to say, I don't really, not really familiar with New Kids on, on the, the Block. block. No, I don't yeah. really know their work. Yeah. Maybe great. I like a lot of other boy bands, so it wouldn't be surprising to me if I liked them. But I feel like, I'm just going to say, do you think Donnie Wahlberg has maybe had too much Botox? I think it's something. And if it wasn't, it was It was like his head was moving apart from the rest of his body. It's like everything is, he looks Asian. Yeah. Like his eyes are starting to, mm-hmm. it's like there's no muscle tone left in the upper part of his face. And it's slowly just running off for over his forehead mm. and it was really it was a very I was looking at him and I was going what has happened what is I think you're pro- I think Botox is being used excessively in Southern California and I think New he York may City. have had too much yeah I think so there's also something that actors go through and I'm blanking on her name but I'm quite fond of her where they get the work done and then it needs to settle right but they go back to work too quickly too soon and um, what was her name? In Plain Sight. She was the star of In Plain Sight on USA. Oh, Mary. Mary. McCormick. McCormick, yes. Love Mary McCormick. Love her. But she did a movie. So great. It wasn't a great movie, but she did this movie right after she had had work done, and she was briefly unrecognizable, and then everything sort of settled down. Yeah. I, just, I think we should be clear here that TDPS supports... Um, plastic surgery, where bet, we better because would be really, I'd be a huge hypocrite. <laughs> because Eric has had some. A I'm just lot. gonna say, um, so yeah, so yeah, so that would yeah. be really hypocritical if we didn't like, I, yeah, no judgment about it, but there are, yeah, there are more successful versions than others, and yeah, yeah, and Mary, I've seen Mary McCormick at book signings, you know what I mean? Like, she looks great and yeah. she, she's gone back to looking great, but yeah, if you come back too soon, it can be. Oh dear! Like yeah. it can, you can look like you're on one of those housewife shows. Yeah, all they right. all come back too soon, or they do it while they're still on the show. Eric, we don't have time for all this tomfoolery. We really don't. We don't. We really don't. We have a lot to talk about on this. Oh, episode. okay. Well, I'm gonna leave that up to you because you're the one who sets the tone for these things. You write the outline, so you know how long it is. I just uh, this is know, a two-parter. Say my, say my um, smarty pants things. This then- is a two-parter. So very scary people. This is season four, episode seven and eight, and this whole show tackles cases in two parts. Meaning very scary people, not us. We don't usually do two parts like this. Um, so yeah, and I think. <laughs> This is one of the more well-known serial killer cases. Can I ask you a question? I know yes, I'm going to try and avoid tomfoolery, <laughs> but, you know, it's still me. So yes, exactly. It's hard for me to tell the difference. Um, Richard Ramirez? Yes. What is his moniker? The Night Stalker. The Night Stalker. That's what I thought this was going to be No. About. I will tell you. We, you and I have had conversations about the Night Stalker case. I know the case very well. I studied it for a book that I wrote and then didn't end up using a real serial killer for the book. So whatever. Uh, there was a recently a Netflix series. You are of the opinion that the Night Stalker case is too scary for us to do. You have said previously you do not want to do the Night Stalker case. And I think that's possibly it's, a wise decision. It's really terrifying. It's really terrifying. It hits really close to home. It was here. It was also in San Francisco, where I'm, and it was around the time I was a kid in San Francisco. And the thing that's wonderful about the Night Stalker case, and there's not much, is the way it was. Yeah, the resolution up. is really kind yeah. of one of my favorite parts. Of, so that you know, it's, that's it's great. like the ending of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Anyway, okay, so that was my. So this is this was kind of a surprise to me that this was because I was thinking it was going to be about that, and then no. it was like, oh, what is this? Mm-mm. And so this was really all new to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was not really aware of this case at all. You don't remember anything about the trial on the news when you were younger? I do not. Yeah, okay. 
I do not have a, like, or maybe I merged the two. Were they similar time period? Maybe I merged the two at the same, at the time or whatever. But yeah, the fall of 77, I was in high school. This was a period where there was a lot of serial killing going on in America, which they say multiple times in this special. So it might have been hard to keep up. Like, yeah. it was really an active time for serial killers. Now, the theory, and I think we've talked about this before on the show, is that women were more independent and they were also more mobile. They were traveling more. They were traveling more alone. Like, you watch a Victorian or Edwardian movie now, and it's like, a, a woman does not go out without an escort, you know? And it's like, the 70s, that was long over, you know? And good. Women shouldn't have to go out with escorts, but... The Queen Victoria had been dead for almost a century. <laughs> yeah, it took that fucking long for women to be able to feel safe to go out alone. And then these psychos come along and set the clock back another few years. But, so, there was a lot going on in this period, but I always hear that and I think... Or was it going on before and it wasn't being reported on? I always think that has to be a factor in it. Like, yeah. are these are there more of these crimes now or have they been going on along? Like, the mass shooting thing, that's clearly, that's not been going on like it is now. Right. But I think there are things like this where the phenomenon is the change in news coverage rather than, right. or just the improved, for, you know, paying attention to the crime itself. Right. Absolutely. So, um, whatever the case, this was really quite the event. This what a was terrifying. The terrifying event. And it's almost like this thing like LA seems to be the city of not just the serial killer, but the spree killer. We're coming out of talking about two episodes that talked about the Zodiac case. Which and this is so much scarier than Zodiac. And the Zodiac case, the timeline was, was really drawn out. And we have opinions about which murders were really his or yeah. whatever. But it's such a different case than this. This was a several months of sheer terror and nonstop killings in the city of Los Angeles. Um, and so was the Night Stalker, if we want to compare it right. to that. It was very similar. Um, okay, Los Angeles in the 1970s was a place where dreams were made, the special informs us. But in the fall of 1977, over a four-month period, the city was terrorized by a predator. So... Once again, we have scripted talking heads in this. They told them what to say, but they're pretty good with the camera. And it was a long time ago, so it's really kind of the only way you're going to be able yeah. to. It's not like they can bring back the originals because they're all going to be 95 years old. This is like our discussion <clears throat> of Zodiac. This is one of those where the the initial murders that were eventually linked to these killers or killer, I should say, spoiler alert, um, were, n were not the first killing that came to the attention of the LAPD as being part of, of a single reign of terror. So they went back and later discovered, oh, there were earlier victims. So, but the first victim that they saw was really the handiwork of a depraved serial killer. Oh, my God. And the description was just devastating. Christina Weckler was her name. She was a 20-year-old art student. She was described as a sweetheart by everyone who knew her. She lived on her own and in the Los Angeles area, but she had a very good friend with whom she had something I think they call a protection pact, which is they were going to check up on each other. They were always going to be aware of the other's whereabouts. So when Christina doesn't show up for class one day, this friend drives to her apartment and finds her Volkswagen parked in its usual spot. She knocks on the door. There's no answer. The apartment manager lets her in. Everything looks normal, but there is no Christina and no sign of her. The same morning, her body is discovered dumped on by the side of a road. There is evidence of sexual violence on her body, as well as marks that suggest IV drug use, but she has no history of drug use of any kind, and her friends and family all say it's preposterous to assume she was using IV drugs recreationally. Uh, one night earlier, a neighbor of Christina's knocked on her door and said, and this was a weird part of the story, the way this is... We'll get to this later. A neighbor of Christina's knocked on her door and said, something has happened to her, your car, and you should come outside and take a look at it. And that was the last anybody saw of Christina until she turned up murdered on the side of a hill. Um, this is like, okay, this is one of those. She was injected with window cleaner. Which, Windex. Which caused violent convulsions but didn't kill her. She was dragged into... Um, a kitchen area. I'm not sure how they determined that. Uh, this special sort of gets it goes back and forth between what was found out later and what was initially um, suggested by the evidence at the scene. 
a plastic bag was put over her head and a gas pipe was put into the bag. It was the there was no scene. So it was yeah. this was must have been from the autopsy or whatever. But yeah, and that didn't kill her. They finally killed her by strangling they her with a They literally just tortured yeah. this woman and then until they murdered her. So the victims that followed were all tortured in a similar manner, but the bodies were all cleaned. And so the police believed initially they were dealing with someone with a medical background. Uh, we get some context about the time it was. As we discussed, people were hitchhiking. It was Los Angeles in the 70s. Women were more comfortable being out on their own, living alone, all that sorts of things. Societal change. being Mary Tyler Moore. Right. Um, and the special goes back to another murder, which police are able to link to this same killer, and that is 19-year-old Yolanda Washington, who was found on the slopes of Forest Lawn Cemetery. She has ligature marks, and once again, her body has been cleaned. But it didn't get much news coverage at the time because she was a prostitute and also a black woman, which they don't say in the they special. But I think that it, was absolutely help, part I think, of the, the yeah. lack of interest that they took. Uh, they interview a woman named Lois Lee, who is the founder president of Children of the Night. I'm not. In, I've heard of Children of the Night before. I wasn't entirely sure on what they do. I thought it was from um, the Vampire Lestat. <laughs> no, it's not from <laughs> Children of the Night. I think Children of the Night is from Dracula. Actually. Children of the Darkness. Isn't Children of the, 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 what does what, what Armand and his group call themselves? Oh, Children of Satan. Satan. Yeah, Children of Satan. No. Um, Children of the Night, I don't know if they were about supporting sex workers or getting them off the street. This was the 70s, so I'm not sure where they were on this well, issue. Well, it would probably have been some of both, although their PR would have said it would be about getting them off the street. They probably yeah. did things to try and support and help people who still were. Yolanda had a three-year-old child at home. Because she still was. She was working as, as a waitress. Her friends called her Lois. And initially, they went to police with a story believing that she had stolen a car from her pimp, which happened to have drugs in it, and they were sure the pimp had killed her. But that turned out not to be the case. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> November 1st, 1977, it's the morning after Halloween, and a young girl's body is found posed naked on a front lawn in La Crescenta, oh. which is a very suburban area here in Southern California. The victim's name is Judith Miller, and because she was not a prostitute and white, I added, it really made the news. Um, kids were going to school in the area, and the people who discovered the body had to put something over it to keep the children from seeing what had been discovered on this front lawn. Like, that's how out there the murder, yeah, these the body dump site was. Their bodies yeah. were left washed and naked and posed. Posed to be public, found. On yeah. public spaces. Um, police later found find a witness who said he saw Julie getting into a car with a man outside Carney's Restaurant in West Hollywood, which is really not far from where we record this podcast. Really not. I love that we're always in the center of some of these stories. It's totally relaxing. Um... <laughs> Anyway, welcome to L.A. Several days later, another body is found in Glendale. This is Lisa Caston, who was a member of a dance troupe called the L.A. Knockers. They show clips of them performing. They were apparently danced on roller skates. Very 70s, very Southern California. Very 70s. Um, the body is found on an embankment near the Glendale Country Club. Once again, it's clean. Once again, there are rope marks. Everyone realizes at this point they're dealing with a serial killer. Right. Um, so those are those are the three hallmarks of the victims. The bodies have been moved. 
which is they they say is abnormal for murder victims. Most murder victims are found pretty close to where they were where killed. Where they were killed, or right where they fell. Um, but they're not killed. They're not left in the, the so there's no crime scene, and they're cleaned. So there's no forensics. Right. And then they're left in these naked and posed in these strange places. So there's very little and information for the to go on. Ligature marks though. Right. That's really the only information. Strangled hillside. Not hard to see where hillside strangler came from. Okay, so on in fact, November 13th, 1977, like, it's just so fast. That's what really struck me about the, like, you see that they flash the dates during these specials all the time. This was just, like, days apart. Yeah. They were just going and ba-bam, going. Bam, 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 bam. November 13th, 1977, this is one month into the spree. Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson are 12 and 14. They take a bus oh. from their home in Eagle Rock to the Eagle Rock Plaza Mall to go shopping. Forgive me, I don't know if they actually lived in Eagle Rock, but that's that was their destination. They catch the bus to come back, and they don't know that they're being watched and hunted. A passenger on the bus watches them get off and notices the two girls go over to a two-tone car and lean into the passenger side. They never show up at home. So they're declared missing. The family is all over it. Flyers are everywhere. A week later, a nine-year-old boy is rummaging through a trash heap at Dodger Stadium and comes across what he thinks are mannequins, but they're covered in flies. And it's Dolores and Sonia. The bus witness's statement suggests that there were two people in the car that hailed them over because that's why the young women went around to the passenger side as opposed to the driver's side. I heard that story and I sort of thought, or the driver's side was in the street. And so it didn't seem that cut and dry to me, but um, it was the first inkling that maybe the killer was more than one person. Right. Okay. The fear is such in Los Angeles at the time, and there is some suggestion that what's getting some of these women to let their guard down— Because as they said, as the father said of the daughters, like, these were not young women who were— not schooled in, you don't get in the car with a stranger, period, ever. So how would you guess that this stranger got them to get in the car by pretending to be a law enforcement officer of some sort? Right. So the police issue a statement that if a single woman is driving alone at night and a cop tries to pull her over, they are free to drive to a lighted area where they feel safe before pulling over. As somebody who, this is not an effect anymore, because I just want to let you know, I was a passenger in a car with a guy who decided he was not going to pull over until he was comfortable after the cops had tried to pull him over, and it did not go like this. <laughs> they are not happy about that. It's not a decision that they respect. Um, Catherine Laurie, the daughter of Peter Laurie, goes to the media and says she and a friend of hers were out uh, driving, and the two of them got cut off and then approached outside their cars by two men who were flashing badges at them, and they asked for her wallet, and they saw a picture of her with her father, Peter Laurie, a very famous film star from the 30s and 40s, and they apparently backed off. That was This was possibly the two predators, and that was too much publicity for them, and once they saw Peter Laurie and the connection, they were like, oh, no, uh uh-uh. Yeah. So her story gets out there, more evidence that these guys are flashing badges and, and pretending it's to two be cops. Them. And then it's two people, right. Um, the patterns that are starting to emerge is the body dump sites are painting a crescent around the city of Glendale. And this is one of the things I wanted to, like, every picture from the lot of aerial photography from the time period, mm-hmm. um, none of it of Glendale. Like, these were this was the Glendale killers, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And yeah. and the, the 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 photography was of Century City, where yeah. none of the victims were originated, were yeah. found, nothing was about it, and downtown. Right. Again, nothing whatsoever to do with the crime. And our neighborhood. And our neighborhood. <laughs> but, this but, yeah. but no uh no visuals of Glendale at all. But that's where the the people were all located. Yes. And then the bodies were dropped in a pretty, just a little wider circle around that area. They even say at one point that Glendale and the adjacent areas of the San Fernando Valley got the nickname Strangler Country. That, that, yeah. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, they say that later. Ouch, And man. he, yeah, they say, anyway, I'll get to it. But on November 23rd, 1977, the body of Jane King is dumped on a popular freeway on-ramp. She was abducted from a bus stop outside the Scientology Center, and she becomes the oldest victim. 
So the LAPD does what everybody should do in cases like these, which is they form a task force with the other police uh, departments that are involved in the investigation, and that's Glendale, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, and the LAPD. They all come together. They have no computers to work with. They're maintaining all of their logs by hand. There's no automated fingerprint system for them to upload suspicious prints to. There's no DNA. And the victims are from all o- various walks of life. And yeah, they have no, yeah. almost nothing in common. So if you're a woman in Los Angeles at this time— That's it. That's all they had in common. Th- that's it. You're a woman, and you can feel vulnerable and like a potential victim. Um, Lauren Wagner is followed by the killers to the front door of her own parents' house. A neighbor sees her arguing and hears Lauren say, you won't get away with this, but the neighbor doesn't fucking report it. And when they find Lauren, they find that she has been tortured with electrical wires. So the torture is varying and And escalating. We don't mean like the twisting them. We mean like burning her with electrical current. There were electrical burns on her hands and her body. On December 14th, 1977, again, it's like once every few weeks, 17-year-old Kimberly Martin is found. She's a call girl who has taken herself off the street and is using an agency instead, and it's not enough to save her life. She had, uh, they find out that she had an altercation at a Hollywood apartment building the night she died, so they go to that building. They interview all the neighbors, and one of those is a man, na- a man named Kenneth Bianchi. Which is a name that is familiar to anyone who knows anything about this case. February 1978, they arrest a suspect named Ned York, Ned T. York, which I initially wrote as Ned de York. And since we're going to hang such a foreboding on Mr. Bianchi, they interviewed him. He seemed like an affable guy. They took his statement and then they moved on. Yeah. Uh, And we'll find out more about the substance of what happened during the interview as we move on as well, as we move on. Okay, Ned York was on Angel Dust, and he wasn't responsible for anything. Accidentally confessed. <laughs> They're under such media pressure that they ran to the press and say, we've, we've arrested a suspect, and then it's, oh, he sobered up, and it turns out it was all a delusion. It was just high. Nothing tying him to the crimes. Um, the killing seemed to stop. It was right after Valentine's Day. So we're into the next year. It's February. And then a helicopter spots an orange Datsun that's apparently run off of Angeles Crest Highway, which is a really uh, forested area. It's where killers in Los Angeles I go mean, to dump their bodies. Really, it's 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 even where the killers in Dead to Me go to dump their bodies. Yeah, it's it's way high up. I'm never driving it because I don't do mountain roads. The views are apparently stunning down the down the mountainside into Los but Angeles. But it is very much a wilderness Basin, area. But it's very much a wilderness area. People go missing there all the time. Um, they're hiking trails. Anyway, the victim is found down the hillside from the wrecked car, and her name is Cindy Huspeth. She was a, blank, a bank clerk who taught Bible classes, and it turns out she lived just across the street from the woman we started our story with, but who actually turned out to be the seventh victim once they were all connected, and that's Christina Wexler. So, like you said, this is happening in Glendale. This is Glendale. Like, this is the Glendale. The woman who, I think the woman who was abducted at the Scientology Center, at the, which is in Hollywood, um, at the bus stop, was still from Glendale. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't know that there's a sense at this point in the story, but that's ultimately a, a, an investigative avenue that emerges. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Cindy, as we just pointed out, she was last seen on Colorado and Glendale Avenue, which is a major Glendale intersection. They paper that intersection with flyers, and they give you a pretty big tease, and they say, we didn't know at the time we were only a block and a half away from where the murders were taking place. On May 1st, 1978, this part of the story was Interesting. In Glendale, a male sex offender named Dwayne Reynolds is shot and killed when he attacks a woman who turns out to have a gun and goes to defend herself when he sets upon her as she's getting into her parked car. This happens just a block and a half from where two of the Strangler victims lived. And Reynolds' home in La Crescenta is two blocks away. Excuse me. Reynolds is the woman that he uh, – no, that's Dwayne Reynolds. Excuse me. Yeah. His home in La Crescenta is two blocks away from where another victim lived. But a search of his home doesn't connect anything uh, – doesn't identify anything connecting him to the murders. But 
you know, this this is like women are so freaked out they're starting to carry guns in their purses. And the the tragedy of this situation is they killed each other. Yeah. He shot her and she shot him and they both died. Yeah. So that is that does not turn out to have actually broken less of a tragedy that he died. Yeah, less of a tragedy that he did. But that does not turn out to have broken the silence from whoever is responsible for these killers. They think at first, oh, it's a new strangler murder, but it's not, because it's not Dwayne Reynolds. Right. So we travel up the West Coast, even though it's still technically California Screaming Month here at TDPS, and we're in Bellingham, Washington, where we meet a young woman named Karen Mandek, who is working at a grocery store called Fred Myers. Did you have Fred Myers? Never heard of Fred Myers. Never heard of Fred Myers. Seems like, wow, was this a really upscale um, it was like a. They said it was a department grocery store, and I was like, "What does was that like, mean?" And it was called Fred. It's like the Fred Siegel of of grocery stores. I like, don't know. Fancy designer groceries. I don't know. I think it was just a lot of selection. It sounded like like you could get clothes and also groceries. Like Target before there was Target or also, Ridgeway. Also, like the hours, like. The, from the story, she took a two-hour dinner break at like nine o'clock or something like. Yeah. She was coming back to work after nine o'clock, like. Well, she was. I think was it the, you know, the twenty-four I, hours. It, it yeah. was. I was a little baffled about Fred Myers, but this is a murder story and not a retail story. It so. isn't, but everyone's movements in a murder story become crucial, and it was a little hard to track the appropriateness of her movements in terms of her own job. So right. she's working at a grocery store, and she tells her manager, "Listen, I've got an opportunity to do this two-hour get freelance gig. Will you give me a long dinner break?" Um, a former coworker has told me he's working for a security company that's putting in a new security system at this house where there's a lot of money and valuables, and he wants me to house sit the house while they're doing the job. Yes, you're putting your Did hand up. Did she say which one? Did she tell him? Like that seems odd to me that you would say a former coworker to the former coworker's boss, but they did not seem to indicate they that didn't to me. Seem to the indicate. clue is elsewhere, but it was still like, was that a detail that didn't get sewn in here? I or? just think that's a little bit of scripting on the part of the people who put this special together. I think she probably did, and they wanted to hold back a beat on the reveal because, spoiler alert, it's going to be Kenneth Bianchi. Remember the charming man at the Hollywood apartment building that was interviewed by the police after the altercation with Jane King? It's Kenneth Bianchi. He's now in Bellingham, Washington. He's her former coworker. When he gives her the job offer, she says, can my roommate be involved? I assume because she doesn't want to house sit a property alone. By herself, I, yeah. So it's For like two hours. The, why, why, the story is like, so what, there's no burglar sy alarm system. It's going to be down for two hours, so they need to sit the house, and it's going to be this. I couldn't figure out. This is very strange. Whatever the story, it was a chance to earn a hundred dollars. It was convincing enough to get her to to her and her roommate to the house alone. And she worked security, so I don't see her as being gullible. Like yeah. he must have been very convincing. So um, she doesn't show up for any her appointments the next day. Um, she never comes back to work. She never comes back to work. The police are called. Her vehicle description goes out. They find a note in her apartment in her roommate Diane's handwriting. Diane is also missing. That says, can be called. And it's got a callback number. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? <laughs> They find out the former co-worker who uh, invited her Karen to do this job. Ken B. Ken B. is Ken Bianchi. And the security company... Remember com Ken Bianchi? And the security company that Ken is now working for, they get in touch with them and they say, Ken didn't have a job that night. 
He only recently moved to the area with his girlfriend, Kelly Boyd, and their infant son. At 2.30 a.m. that morning, they moved fast, or else there weren't a lot of missing persons cases in Bellingham. Or he really, really screwed the pooch on this one. He just, like, every—it was like writing them an invitation to arrest him. They find him at 2.30 a.m. in the morning, and he at first lies outright about knowing Karen at all. But then at 4.30 p.m. the following afternoon, a car is found and two bodies are found inside. And the bodies belong to Karen and Diane. And they have ligature marks on them. And they were killed just hours after their disappearance. In Bianchi's, in Bianchi's apartment, they found a note with Karen's name on it in the his one handwriting. Never met. Right, that contradicts his statement that he never met her. They find items stolen from Fred Myers, and they're able to charge him with that before they have to let him go after 72 hours. Right. Uh, at the crime scene, it looked like the entire home had been wiped down, and they're assuming that the crime scene is the, the site of the fake security job, right. I think. And they find a pubic hair on Diane's body that matches Bianchi's, but the hair is not considered a positive ID. We have talked about, didn't we do another story that was about hair follicle evidence not really being usable in a trial? I can't trial? remember what it was, but yeah, it, is, it yeah. is something that has fallen out of favor, they were saying. Yeah. I think that was the nature of the trial. But at that point in time, they didn't have DNA, they didn't have anything, so... While it may have been indicative that it wasn't hers, yeah, that probably wasn't much more um, indicated. The the fact that he's basically paved the road right to him with all of this contact and former employee, like I have to assume that the that the boss from work ID'd him because yeah, if it was a former employee and they they both worked for it, she would have said to her boss, "Oh yeah, Ken is getting me this job." Because he would have known Ken was working for a new security company, right. and so it would have made perfect sense to him. Right, and it's part of why they got to him so quickly, yes, obviously. absolutely. So that is the end of part one of this installment of Very Scary People, and we move right into part two, which is entitled She Walked Right Into the and Trap. And Donnie has still not recovered from the Botox. And then. he has not recovered from the Botox. Most of part two is catch-up for people who didn't part watch part one. Um but we do learn a new detail about the uh, circumstances under which Dolores Cepeda and Christine Johnson were abducted. They were the two teenage girls who were going to the Eagle Rock Mall. Um, that, that the father came out really publicly and decisively and said, you know, as we said earlier, they would not get in a car right. unless somebody um, pretended to be a safety official of some sort trying to protect them and said it's not safe for you to be out in the street. And we later learned that's exactly what happened. So we're back to Bellingham, the police chief in Bellingham at the time of this, the Karen Mandek and Diane uh, murders, was from L.A. And so he was familiar enough with the specifics of the Strangler cases to think that there might be a connection between those murders and these. And interestingly, the detective who arrested Ken B. and oversaw this case is actually in this particular special. He is definitely yeah. an older man. Yes. Uh, by this point, but still very much in possession of the facts about this case. Dave McAhern is his name. And when we first meet him, we don't really know what role he's going to play because you so often retired detectives are just interviewed to be talking heads on these things. But he turns out to be yeah, the he's detective. A source. Yeah. They found out that Ken lived in so called Strangler Country. This is where the reference was, which was the Glendale and San Fernando Valley area. He's originally from Rochester, New York. The quote is, to say he had a troubled childhood was putting it mildly. His birth mother was a sex worker who gave him up for adoption. His adopted mother was domineering. His adoptive father was submissive. His school records uh, reference chronic lying. At 12 years old, he pulls down a young girl's pants. However, he's quite handsome and has a certain aspect of his personality that charms people. And he marries a girl right out of high school who leaves him immediately. So not that charming. She had good sense. Well, lies don't last very long. He pursues jobs that are about getting a position of authority, but he never makes the cut. And we find out later that he made an attempt to become a Los Angeles police officer and sent some red flags up. There yeah, was just whatever. Yeah. They were not interested. So he becomes a security guard. And he gets caught stealing from the stores he was hired to protect. So he moves to Los Angeles to uh, live with his cousin, who he worships, Angelo Blono, another name that is familiar to anyone who knows this case. So meanwhile, Bianchi is arrested in Bellingham, Washington. He's denying his guilt. 
He begins writing letters to his girlfriend, Kelly Boyd, proclaiming his innocence. Bellingham files for the death penalty. And then the defense attorney claims Bianchi has multiple personality disorder. Oh, jeez. And we are treated to actual video footage of what one expert accurately calls the worst performance she has ever seen. It's just the <laughs> I'm nothing, nothing about it is convincing. Nothing. Like, he, nothing that he's saying, certainly not his acting, certainly not that, it's, that he's been hypnotized. Yeah. Nothing. It is the most, it's like a child is trying to convince you of something. It's it's that simplistic. He doesn't say, and now you will meet my other personality, but it's almost that stiff. Like, yeah. and now my other personality. And so the personality he blames for the murders is Stephen Walker. <laughs> and this is maybe my favorite part. This is the part where... This there's a blend of crazy, stupid, and and um, well, it makes it clear that he's not the brains of this operation. No, and that he couldn't pull it off alone. Yeah, that's the other thing. So he had been running. This is Bianchi now. He's been he had been running a scam in Los Angeles where he put out an ad in the paper looking to hire a psychologist for a non-existent practice, and had applicants send in their school transcripts. Then he falsified them and put his own name on some of them. But I think he was also selling fake transcripts to other people. That yeah. was his business. So, but in the in the process of this, he got he started he, practicing as a psychologist. He, told, he actually got hired by someone, right? With under a false name, with false transcripts, and he used the other guy's name. And what do you know? It's also the name of his alternate personality. Stephen Walker. I the mean, person he stole the transcripts from. I just, anyway. So Stephen Walker actually exists, and this guy has actually used Stephen Walker's name when he was being a fake psychiatrist, because that's where the big money is. Yeah. I just, I just like, just a complete moron. Yeah. So two months after he's arrested in Bellingham, investigators can finally link him to the murders in L.A., and they come to him and they say, Basically, you if you have an, if you rat out your accomplice because we're pretty sure you're too stupid to have done this on your own, uh, we'll let you turn state's witness. And Washington has the death penalty. Is that how this works? Or California got rid of the death penalty in 1976? I think is when it was. I don't know, but yeah. it, it also has um, Walla Walla. Yeah, the worst. But that's the movie. That's, that's the, the movie, movie we're okay. going to talk. And I Sorry. think. And a spoiler alert: This is one of those instances, unlike our last pairing, where the movie was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like none of this seemed accurate. But okay. Um, he agrees. He says, "I'll turn against my cousin if you take me and try me in California and get me the fuck after out of." Uh, but the prosecutor in Bellingham is asking for consecutive life sentences. And I think that's the offer if Bianchi agrees to waive extradition and go testify in L.A. against his cousin. The death penalty or whatever it is, the terrible state prison there is off the table. And so they – this is the part where I don't know if this would ever fly today. So Buono, his cousin, gets named in the press as a possible suspect, but they have nothing to arrest him on yet other than the account of a lunatic compulsive liar – shouldn't call him a lunatic. He's not actually suffering from any No, he doesn't appear to have actual yeah. mental illness unless you consider um, it, stupidity to be a mental illness. It's certainly a mental condition, but well, I think it it just it seems to be more based on his lack of application than any actual loss of facility. He's just a murderer. I mean, a lying murderer. Like, there may be a mental label for that, but it's not. he's not suffering from multiple personalities yeah, disorder. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. a well-adjusted individual, but he's not— He's yeah. a psychopath is he's what he is. He's just a terrible person. So, um, Buono, let's meet Angelo Buono. He's an upholsterer who claims celebrities among his clients, including Frank Sinatra, which means someone who worked for Frank Sinatra probably went in his office once 10 years ago, because that's how that works here. I said, here, here paint my car. Right. Um, however, he was an obsessive, compulsive, neat freak who'd wash things several times. Um, <laughs> I like the way you said that. Well, it's the first thing that they present where it's like ding, 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 like ding. Like a raccoon. That raccoon yeah. washed that marshmallow twice. He must be the killer. <laughs> well, his bodies were good. Anyway, okay. Um so there's this period of time, as I mentioned earlier, where Buono's just walking around L.A. with everybody thinking he might be one of the Hillside Stranglers. Which has got to be really not good for business or life. 
So he's born in Rochester in 1934. He had a troubled relationship with his mother. His mother had an affair, and it ruined their parents' marriage. And and this is all the words of these talking head experts. His hatred for women shows up again and again in his life. As a teenager, he bragged about raping and sodomizing young women. At 21, he impregnates a 17-year-old girl and marries her. He's horrible to her. Huge shock. He fathers at least eight children and never takes responsibility for any of them. He abuses all of his wives and one of his stepdaughters, saying she needs to be broken in. He's a monster is what he is. He's a fucking monster. just really choice. So when Bianchi gets to Los Angeles, which where and he's moving there because he got fired from his security jobs for stealing from places he was supposed to be guarding, he starts his fraud psychological business, as we've already talked about. And he becomes so well-read on the subject, he convinces another psychologist to let him have an office space, and he even has one or two patients. He applies to be a cop, and he's disqualified because of how he comes across. So what do he and his cousin do? They become pimps. And they pretend to be modeling agents, and they approach young women and give them business cards and say, you'd look great on camera. Charming. So he approaches a young woman named Sabra and pressures her to bring in another woman named Becky. Both of these women, it sounds like, are interviewed during the Buono walks around free period before the trial and when nobody had any real evidence to connect him. Right. And they basically talk about... um, that that they were abusive, that they had to struggle to get away. Becky allegedly describes Bianchi's behavior to one of the clients they sent her out to meet one night, and he helped her get away. So it was the client with a heart of gold who right. saved the young women from the evil pimps. And people are actually doubting this story at the time. They're thinking, these young women have an axe to grind against Bordeaux and Bianchi, and it's because like... Because why would you ever want to believe the women? Right. Like, I just swear to God. It's just like, oh, for God's sake. It's just unbelievable. What are they going to get out of this yes. if you believe them? Like, oh, my God. Anyway. Yeah, like, and what, yeah, what do you get out of going on TV and admitting that you were a sex worker in this time period on top of that and that you were abused? Like, what, they thought they were being paid? Like, I just... Anyway. Anyway, it's horrible. Okay. But because of the departure of these women, they needed to replace them. And they replaced them with a young woman named Yolanda Washington, who was our victim number one. And there. And now the connections start to line up. Yolanda goes to meet with them, and they present her with what is allegedly a book of potential customers. And she realizes the book is fake, that they aren't real names. They aren't like, how stupid must this book? Like, that she well, just, you know. This is the guy who thought he was going to make big money being a fake psychologist. Right. So I think probably, like, I don't know that Bono's as stupid as Bianchi, but right. he was stupid enough to partner with Bianchi, and none of this sounds like a good plan. So, yeah, I expect it was probably really stupid and fake. So she basically says, Take a hike, fellas. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Unfortunately, in the course of her meetings with them, she let them know which areas of the street she worked, and they went and they found her and they killed her. So interesting isn't necessarily the word I should use here. It is fascinating from a forensic perspective to see that the murder that started all of this was revenge. It was a form of more basic retaliation, not justified by any means, but almost they were punishing her for saying no to them, she was known to them, and that in the course of murdering her, they triggered something in themselves that was going to lead to a months-long murder spree. Right, it was, they were, these were two men who really had an axe to grind with women. Yeah. And she was the match that lit that fuse. So most of the victims, it turns out, despite being dumped all over Glendale, were brought back to Bueno's home next to his upholstery shop, and that's where all the hideous, horrible things happened. <clears throat> they were bound and they were gagged so nobody could hear them screaming, but they were there was a specific chair where they did horrible things to them, and uh, all of this is going to turn up in forensic evidence once they get the police get into that shop. Right. Um, they're close to last victim, Kimberly Martin, um, she's the one who was working with an escort service uh, that sent her to an empty apartment in Bianchi's building. She thought it would be safer to work with a service than to work on the street. 
Uh, they ended up in the struggle. The neighbors overheard. The cops are called. We talked about this in the in the previous installment of this show. Right. Bianchi got interviewed. Well, what we learned later is that they were looking at everybody's driver's license, um, and he managed to charm his way out of showing his license to the cops. And if they had shown it, they would have seen it was the same address as Christina Wexler, who's the victim we first started talking about, who turned out to be victim number seven. Because they used to be neighbors. Because they used to be neighbors. So remember the neighbor that told Christina there was something wrong with her car and she mm-hmm. had to go out and check? That was, was Kenneth Bianchi. The detail that just froze my blood about all of this, Cindy Huspich, the last victim, she was found next to her wrecked Dodson right. off Angeles Crest Highway. She actually walked into the upholstery shop Looking for some upholstery work. That's how they and got that her. And that was the end of her. That's how they got her car. Fucking monsters. Okay, as if this story was not already fucked up enough, okay? Bono decides that, that okay, the, the, the story now, okay, is that <laughs> so many fucking twists and turns with these assholes. Bono then tells Bianchi, you got to get out of L.A. Your behavior is too high risk. You're going to expose both of us. Get the fuck out of town. So Bianchi moves to Bellingham, Washington, and that's where we sort of started this episode of Very Scary People. Right. Enter Veronica Compton, a self-described playwright who wrote a play called The Mutilated Cutter, which one talking head says, well, isn't that a title? Um, <laughs> she wants to interview Bianchi, and she contacts him and interviews him in prison, and they fall in love. And she's written a screenplay about a female serial killer who lays a false trail for investigators by taking the semen of innocent men and leaving it at the scene. So together, Bianchi and Compton, both idiots, come up with a plan. He gives her a condom full of semen. This is the part where I lost it. Like, wait, whose semen was it supposed to be? Because it's supposed to be an innocent man's semen. Well, they didn't have any way of telling whose semen it was at that point in time. Oh, so God. Okay. they were safer. It was if the before a, times. If ever anyone's semen, I don't want to talk about it. It's Kenneth Bianchi's. But um, where, what other semen is he going to get? I mean, yeah. he's in prison, so he probably could have come up with some. But I don't know. It would have been an innocent person, and it would have been another person in prison with him. So it wouldn't have helped. So, but what Veronica Compton's M.O is what they're both planning to do is she travels to Bellingham and wears a disguise and meets a young woman in a bar named Kim Breed. She invites Kim back to her hotel room. A pregnant woman who's drinking at a bar, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Back to hotel room and tries to strangle her, which does not go well because even if she is pregnant and drinking, Kim Breed is strong enough to fight her the fuck off, which is what happens. Veronica gets arrested for attempted murder in the first degree. She claims it was just a role-play game that went wrong, and no one believes her, and so she's convicted. But the goal was she was going to kill Kim Breed in the same manner as the strangler and victims. And the semen on her. Semen on him, yeah. And then Bianchi would be innocent because there would be another crime committed by the same murderer that wasn't him because he couldn't possibly have been because he was in prison at the time. It's, again, from the same playbook as every other stupid choice they've made. Yeah, just really, uh, okay. So it just lands Veronica in prison, too. It lands Veronica in prison. 22 where, years. Where she fucking belongs. Yeah. Catherine Mater, who has been interviewed right along as a talking head, is then identified as the defense attorney for Angelo Buono. And she tells us what I thought was the most interesting part of this whole story, yeah. which was the legal maneuvering. So the district attorney got cold feet. He felt that they didn't have enough. This was the most amazing part of this story. To try um, Buono. And, and in this world that we live in, when the district attorney says he doesn't think that he can get make the case, that's kind of the end of the story. But it was not the case here. I've never heard this before or since. The judge said there is enough physical evidence to proceed to trial. The district attorney's complaint is my star witness is Kenneth Bianchi. And th- I could see that being a problem. And he's a lunatic and a liar, a, a compulsive liar. liar. He's a compulsive liar. No yeah. one's going to trust him. But the judge said, you have enough forensic evidence. You have evidence from the upholstery shop, from the chair in which the women were raped. You have all the sort of stuff you can proceed to trial with. And if you don't want to proceed to trial with, I'll appoint some lawyers who will. And that's what he does. He appoints yeah. a different set of lawyers. Um, I've never heard of that before. And the trial lasts two years from 1981 to 1983. I've never heard of that before either. Jesus Christ. Longest trial in L.A. County at the time. Uh, They did use Bianchi as a star witness, even though the defense countered that it's impossible for him to tell a consistent story. 
Jury deliberations began on October 21st, 1983. At 4, and it later, at 4.30. <laughs> right? And the jury describes, the jury's um, verdicts come in piecemeal, which I don't know what they meant by that. They didn't come to a, a single, they didn't say, yeah. okay, we've come to a conclusion in all these cases. It's, they okay. ruled on the cases individually. And so on the murder of Yolanda Washington, it was the verdict was not guilty. They felt there wasn't enough evidence to connect them to the murder. But everything else, they go down, down, everything down, else. down, down, down. Because the jury recommends a life sentence, the judge is bound by that decision, but his comments pretty much make it clear that he... Would have killed them. He, well, he couldn't kill them because it was 1983. Right. But, I, you know, I, I, I get consecutive life sentences. I don't know if there was no opportunity for parole. I don't know. Anyway, in 2002, Buono is serving his sentence when he dies of a heart attack. Boo-hoo. Boo-fucking-hoo. Bianchi has filed numerous appeals. He'll be eligible for parole in 2025. Okay, I want to tell you something I was reading about that I think relates to this case. What? In 1976, California declared that the death penalty was unconstitutional. But the manner in which uh, that was going to have to be dealt with was the legislature's responsibility in the following session. And there was a gap period between the decision. And so at that time, during that period... It was not part of the California penal code, penal, penal code excuse me, to send anyone to jail without the possibility of parole. And so there are incredibly violent, horrible offenders out there that come up for parole every few years as a result of having fallen in that gap period. And the family members have to go in every few years. <laughs> you know, it's like... And there was an article about it in the San Francisco paper because there was a terrible crime there in the 70s around this time where a woman was almost burned to death by her husband's rapist and murderer in the room. And he comes up for parole every her few husband's years. rapist he, and murderer? The guy broke in, I'm sorry, raped her, killed her husband, oh. and then attempted to set her on fire. And this lunatic, who has never expressed remorse or apology, who has lied and said he was the husband's lover at some point and he was jealous, who has tried to manipulate the parole process. Every few years, this poor woman has to go through the parole process again with this guy because of this gap between the decision and the next legislative period. So I, I just brought that up because I don't know if they had the possibility to give them life without parole. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Bono's dead and... What's his fuck is so stupid that somebody will kill him in the first five minutes if they ever let him out, but they're never going to let him out because no. he's the hillside strangler. Yeah, he's the fucking hillside strangler. Okay, so we sort of went over time. There was a lot to cover. There were a lot of horrible murders. I mean, it is really like the thing that I was struck by was how little I knew about this crime. Mm. Yeah. Like I would, this is really horrible. This yeah. is a really much more prolific, much worse than than um, Zodiac. I know that's a weird thing to say because, you know, being a serial killer is pretty awful. No matter how many people you kill, mm -hmm. killing one is too many. You know, like so that's a strange thing to say. But the only reason I cite it is that I have never not known about the Zodiac, and I thought this was a different murder. I didn't even think this was them. I had never heard of them. I had never heard of two serial killers working together. Like, mm -hmm. everything about this case, a lot of this case was a surprise to me in terms of its actual facts on the surface of it, but there was a lot of stuff I'd never heard of before at all, and mm -hmm. it was really like, why do I not know more about this case? Also, we ran into it next week. Part of the reason that we chose the movie pairing that we've chosen for this is because there weren't a bunch of movie pairings mm -mm. to choose from. It's it's a you know it's it's that kind of case because it gets solved and it happens and and it you know they get suspects and they get convicted. So I'm surprised it hasn't been more. There's not more awareness of this crime. I I think a lot. The answer is in is twofold. One is the Zodiac obsession is about the mysterious unsolved nature right. of it. That's that's what drives everybody and crazy. It's all about press. It's all about press. This was in the long arc of things. This was solved rather quickly, and the information that became known about the killers inspired a lot of fictional portrayals of them. There was a, a kind of underground indie movie hit called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which I believe was largely inspired by this case. 
Copycat, the movie with Sigourney Weaver, references this case and includes it. And there there were people who took the story and made it their own in a fictional sense because right. there wasn't an unknown about it at the end because it all came to horrible light. So that may be and part of it. And because they were such idiots. Yeah. They're yeah. not interesting characters at all. They're just morons. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, they're, they're, they're monsters. I mean, that's the thing. But I think deep down when we look at all of them, they're all monsters, but... There are Jeffrey Dahmer fans who go on Jeffrey Dahmer tours. It's a really weird, there's a really weird cult around Jeffrey Dahmer in Wisconsin. And it's very, it's problematic. And it's largely women who have this almost motherly attitude towards them. I will tell you, I think the Veronica Compton, a lot of this mimicked the Ted Bundy case. Remember the, I don't know, we've never done Bundy, but there was a woman who fell in love with Bundy. She thought he was innocent. You know, there was a woman who married the Night Stalker. This was the beginning of what became almost like a boilerplate for these sort of hideous, horrible stories. And so maybe it's forgotten as the source material because the more recent examples are more in people's minds. I don't know. It just yeah. surprised me. It was, yeah. that was That was the thing that was the most noteworthy about the case to me was that I didn't know more about it. Yeah. Well, the question of whether or not we will learn more about it or less about it will come up next week as we do our true crime pairing, our second of the month. California Screaming Month continues. We're going to be watching The Case of the Hillside Stranglers, which is available to stream on Paramount Plus and stars, what was Richard Crenna in? You mentioned the, the last The Real one. McCoys. The Real McCoys. Okay. That's my first awareness of him, which... Don't, that's been so long ago. I may be the only person left to ever watch that show. We'll see how he performs in the case of the Hillside Stranglers. We'll see who he performs. We'll see if he's the real McCoy. Oh, yeah, we'll see if he's the real McCoy or if he's one of the Stranglers. That'll be next week. And until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.